The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to Privacy Piracy at KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming online at KUCI.org. Hi, I'm, the, I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. Mari's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, lots of other shows, including her own uh, 90-minute PBS special a couple years ago called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. I'm very excited to interview this gentleman tonight. I met him back, I think, in 2002 when he was very strong and very fervent about helping to get the financial privacy law passed here in California. And I've met him on several occasions at privacy conferences, and I've been so thrilled that he's willing to come on our show and share his great expertise. A great guy. Tonight we are going to be interviewing Richard Holliber, who happens to be the executive director of the Consumer Federation of California. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. He served as the executive director for the Consumer Federation of California since 2001. Back in 2002, he co-founded Californians for Privacy Now, which was instrumental in winning the nation's strongest financial privacy law, which was Senate Bill 1 of the year 2003 uh, by Jackie Spear. Remember, we had Jackie Spear on our show to talk about it. In his work with the Consumer Federation, he has advocated for legislation to expand health care patient rights. He's also advocated to protect the public from defective products, for food safety laws, and for stronger protections against fraudulent sales practices. Prior to joining the Consumer Federation of California, Richard served for over 20 years in leadership positions in the labor movement. He served as a legislative advocate for the California Labor Federation for 13 years, and in 1995, he founded the Livable Wage Coalition, and he served as full-time manager of Proposition 210 campaign, which raised California's minimum wage by 35%. He has served as political director for the California Nurses Association and the Southern California and Southern California director for U.S. Senator Alan Cranston. He is also a trustee of the San Mateo Co- County Community College District, and he was elected in 1997, re-elected in 2001 and 2005. And Richard was elected to the Millbury School Board in 1993 and served for four years. So he he understands politics. I know that from serving on the Saddleback School Board, you got to have you have to really understand politics, which is why I no longer want to do that. <laughs> but anyway, he uh, the website that you'll see you can learn more about him and his wonderful work is Consumer Cal 
org. And I want to uh, welcome you, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. I'm very happy to do it. And I want to start by thanking you for your incredible leadership on uh, privacy protection and fighting identity theft. You, you, you're a true pioneer in that area. Well, you know what? We are all in it together, working together, and we can't. And anybody, nobody can do it alone, right? We all have to help each other. So, you know, you have such a wonderful Consumer Federation here. Tell us more. I don't think many people know about the Consumer Federation of California. Okay, well, the Consumer Federation of California uh, was created in 1960. Actually, it had a different name at that time, but has been under the name Consumer Federation of California since 1972. And we are a nonprofit organization that, um, first and foremost, we advocate, meaning we fight and lobby in Sacramento for laws that protect consumers. And we also do education and research, trying to uh, make people better informed consumers. And um, we're doing more work now in terms of providing some direct services to consumers that have complaints that need help trying to figure out how to, how to have um, their complaints handled. So uh, we are made up of both individual members and a number of organizational memberships. And so anybody who's listening to this can also join, right? We would welcome people to join, and uh, you can do that by going to our website, www.consumercal.org. Consumer Terrific. So tell me, Richard, when you came to the Consumer Federation, one of the big issues for you was financial privacy. Let's, let's talk about, I don't think people understand exactly what we talk about when we're talking about financial privacy and what we have done in this state a lot due to all of your work in financial privacy? Well, financial privacy really means that the information that we hold dear and consider to be extremely confidential, uh, unfortunately, businesses with whom we do business have a very different attitude. And when we give them information for the limited purpose of a business transaction, they think that it's theirs to sell or share or swap and make money off of usually through marketing different products to you. So this has become a huge problem, particularly when federal law changed in the 19, late 1990s and allowed banks and insurance companies and stockbrokers and other uh, financial institutions to um, basically have uh, common ownership. And at that time, there were certain federal laws enacted, but they were pretty weak. Uh, allowing, uh, generally speaking, allowing banks, insurance companies, brokerage firms, and others to share willy-nilly. So in California, uh, we work together to uh, do everything in our, our power to give the consumer control. Uh, you know, our, our, our slogan is real simple, ask me first. <laughs> ask my permission before you take my stuff and give it out, my information, and give it out to strangers. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't want to tarnish all banks and all financial institutions. Certainly you have good guys and bad guys, but let's put it this way. <laughs> that industry didn't think that we should ask them first. Their attitude was, we'll take your stuff and profit off of it. Tough luck. Right. Uh, 
and, and, and we should go back to that that government, the federal law, because I think that is kind of the springboard for what we did in California. You know, the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which was the act that you're talking about, that mm-hmm. Financial Modernization Act, basically, like you were saying, it allowed insurance companies and banks and all people in the financial industry really to share our information unless unless we told them that we didn't want them to after they started doing it. In other words, we had the right to opt out of them sharing our information with third parties that were not affiliated with them. But the what that law also did was to say that any company that was part of the family, and if you think of GE, for example, General Electric, part of their family is probably 20 pages long of different companies, they could basically share that information indiscriminately, and we wouldn't have any right to tell them to stop doing that. And, of course, we'd have no right to have them ask me first, like you say. So that's where we were with the federal law when you came into it, at least in the state area. So now maybe you could talk about what happened then. Sure. Well, what happened was um, we, we, we were finding that, uh, you know, there, there's no issue that matches this one in terms of an issue that the public understands, they get it, and they want our information protected. I mean, we're talking about an issue with 90% voter support, yet we could not budge the legislature. We could not get a bill out of the first committee, the Assembly Banking Committee. Everything was being crushed under millions of dollars of campaign contributions from the financial institutions. So we tried and we tried and we were not succeeding. And, and wait a second, Richard, and, and the, the reason that they were putting so much into that is I think a lot of consumers don't understand why they were fighting you so hard. Well, it's it's all about money, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, you know, w- w- one really fascinating um, uh, thing we we kept finding was that uh, we heard all of these different arguments from the financial institutions, and they kind of boiled down to this: um, consumers just want to know about all these wonderful products <laughs> that you know, and it's our duty. It's our duty to, to bombard them with uh, junk mail <laughs> right. and, and telemarketing calls because that's what consumers want. And, you know, we said, well, if they want it, we'll let them tell you they want it. <laughs> right. you know, right. if, if they don't, then don't make the assumption. Most people can't stand getting the stuff. They hate it. It's right. a, you know, so what we kept asking was, uh, how much money do you make selling our information? And, of course, these companies absolutely refuse to answer that question, and we know it's in the billions, if not tens of billions of dollars that are made off of selling and swapping uh, our information for ever more sophisticated marketing kinds of uh, tactics. Right, and I don't think people realize that not only do the credit bureaus sell our information so that we get pre-approved offers from the credit bureau, you know, that are from creditors that buy from the credit bureaus, but also our own banks, our credit card companies, our insurance companies, everybody and their brother is selling our information, and that information's worth a lot of money, isn't it? Oh, it's worth a fortune. And, uh, you know, the kind of information that can be gleaned from a credit card, for example, it, you know, it exposes everything that you spend money on. 
Right. So uh, there, there are lots of businesses out there that want to know, well, let's see who's in, you know, you know, whatever, the age 50 to 60 age group that likes to go on a particular type of vacation or likes to do gardening or you name it, and then we will uh, make sure we load their mailbox. And, and at that time, their, their telephone lines with uh, all kinds of marketing pitches. Uh, you know, the, the, the other problem with this is that it is a gateway to identity theft. I mean, it's bad enough uh, th- that we're being bombarded with, with a lot of marketing, which is deceptive marketing, but the more our information is floating around, you know, in, in the uh, ether, if you will, in the Internet world, it's so easy for information to be passed from hand to hand and computer to computer. That opens all kinds of gateways for identity theft. Exactly. And, and by the time people become victims of identity theft, they have no idea where it came from because it's already been bought and sold and shared so many times that it's just out there in Never Never Land. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, so let's get back to what happened then. So you, you, sure. you asked them and you tried. How many years did you try to Well, it took three years to, to get Senate Bill 1 uh, approved. And there was a point where we got involved, and I don't know, maybe I'm just a contrary person, but my attitude is if you keep uh, losing in one arena, you find a different arena to fight. And uh, clearly we, we, we could never match the money that was being poured in by the financial institutions between their lobbyists and their financial contributions. So uh, we started moving to put this on the ballot, and we did some polling, and the banks also did their polling, and the polls were very consistent. Ninety percent of voters were going to vote for this, and there was nothing that would change their mind. You know, in when you do polling, you run through all the arguments, pro and con, and we loaded it with all the arguments against. And and after hearing all the arguments, we, we were at 91% support. Right. So we put together the coalition, uh, Cal- um, California's for Privacy Now. We were extremely fortunate to have the support of a maverick in the banking uh, finance field who helped to fund our signature drive. And with, uh, with 600,000 signatures in hand, and we announced that we we're going to submit them. And once you submit them, you can't take them back. Right, it goes right. on the ballot. Right. <laughs> uh, the banks knew that this would win and maybe start a tidal wave uh, across the nation. So they said, you know, I think we ought to sit down <laughs> and talk. <laughs> talk about leverage and bringing people to their senses so they'd come to the table, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. So uh, we saw something that uh, was amazing. Um, the day before the deadline to submit the signatures, uh, a bill that had not budged for three years was went through six separate votes in the legislature. It went through the Assembly Banking Committee, Appropriations Committee, and Assembly Floor, the Senate Banking Committee, the Senate Appropriations, and Senate Floor, and was sent to the governor for his signature. And that required waiving all the rules. And lobbyists who had been there for a lifetime said, this has never happened before, <laughs> six votes in one day. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, we did uh, work out a compromise. And um, even with that compromise, California does have the nation's toughest financial privacy law. And part of that part of that was overturned, though, right? I mean, basically what we ended up getting was that People who live in California, residents of California, have to be asked first 
before their information is sold or shared with third parties who are not affiliated with that company, right? Correct. But Correct. we also tried, in originally, uh, the bill said that um, for party for affiliates, uh, you could opt out, correct? That's correct. And then tell them what happened with the court. Well, what happened is that the same banks that said, you know, we can live with this California law and who withdrew their opposition and, in fact, ordered <laughs> all the lawmakers that are really on their payroll to vote for the bill to stop it from going on the ballot, right. immediately ran to Congress and ran to the courts and uh, we did um, lose in a court case. The federal courts found that that provision was preempted by federal law. So uh, within a family, you know, within a company that has uh, its tentacles in banking and, and, and um, credit cards and insurance and brokerages, et cetera, uh, unfortunately we cannot uh, stop that sharing inside a corporate entity. Right. And, but, and, but and the reality is, is that's pretty bad because so many companies eat up other companies or acquire them or merge with them. So, you know, for example, if you refinance your house and you look at the title company and they say, these are our affiliates, it could be 10, 12 pages. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, so it, it, it was really, I mean, yes, we got a great win, but we also have a loss that, unfortunately, that Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or the Financial Modernization Act, that preempted our state law, which is pretty scary stuff when we yeah. get the feds to do that. Yeah, and uh, I, I will say this, that um, at that time there was a very strong effort to, um, you know, what they call grandfather California's law so that we would be able to keep Senate Bill 1 intact. And I, I do want to give credit to both our senators, uh, Senator Boxer and Feinstein, who fought very hard, but unfortunately were the only two votes in the Senate <laughs> uh, wow. to, to do that. And uh, our, our in, in the House of Representatives, uh, we had a number of the California members who sided with us, but unfortunately a number that voted against us as well. Right. And we're seeing so much of a wave of um, federal legislation preempting state law and and taking away a private right of action that it's really hurting uh, the future of of uh, consumer advocacy don't you think oh absolutely I mean, you know um, the uh, it, it, it's a it's a very odd phenomenon because the same um, generally speaking you know more conservative Republican members of Congress who are all in favor of states rights uh, all of a sudden, when it comes to a state having a higher standard protecting the consumer, um, hate the idea of, of having states in control. They want everything at the federal level, you know, under the theory that it sets a level playing field. But California has a history of leading this nation. We've led the nation in consumer protection. We've led the nation in environmental protection. Uh, we've led the nation in, in some labor laws, minimum wage, and other laws. And as we lead, other states come along, and then finally the feds come along. But right now, in the past several years, the trend has been to just try to quash the states from uh, creating a higher standard. Right, right. So that's why we have to educate consumers, and that's why, thank goodness, you're on our show tonight. Let's talk now about the privacy issues that you're working on right now. We're, we're working on several other issues in the privacy field. 
One is radio frequency identification tags, or RFIDs, and these are uh, transmitting devices that are embedded in all kinds of things. You know, they originated like in the um, uh, retail stores where they would attach a tag to clothing, and if you walked out trying to shoplift, it would, you know, set off a beeper. Right. Um, but now uh, these are being used in all sorts of identification documents and often without the individual's knowledge or consent. So um, at the state level, a um, local school district uh, put RFIDs in student ID cards. And they did it, you know, I think they were well-intended. They wanted to be able to figure out if some child wandered off. But the parents learned that these RFIDs were, were embedded in their ID cards. They learned that they are very subject to hacking, and you don't want some kind of predator, uh, you know, tracking your kid's whereabouts. Right. So that brought this issue to the fore. Uh, we've been working with Senator Simidian, uh, who has introduced legislation to um, create at least a moratorium on the use of RFIDs embedded in government-issued documents. And uh, last year, uh, his first attempt uh, was vetoed by the governor. This year, he's uh, come back and, I think, taken a more gradual approach, and it makes sense. Uh, he has a series of bills that deal with um, different kinds of ide identification, one school documents, one uh, driver's licenses, one would be, you know, various kinds of professional IDs and cards that you get. And um, he, he got the first bill signed by the governor, <laughs> and um, I, don't, I, I hope it's a, a, a sign of, of more to come. Wasn't that the school bill? Well, actually, the one that was signed yeah. pre prevented subcutaneous implants. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, you talk about Brave New World, the idea of that, you know, if your boss wants to implant a chip under your skin <laughs> so right. that they can track you wherever you go, uh, thank, thank goodness the governor signed a bill saying, no, that doesn't seem like a good idea. Well, you so, know, they were doing that in Mexico City yeah. for, for, the, for the DAs who were going into the courthouse. They, were, they actually had RFIDs on them embedded in their skin so that they could watch and make sure that they weren't being kidnapped. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so so it wasn't so, you know, you know, 1984 or you know, brave new world type of thing. That thing ha can happen. They're doing it for people who have Alzheimer's. Yeah. it's pretty scary. Yeah. I mean, I I mean, I do have a chip in my dog, but I yeah. think it's a little bit different having a chip in a dog who can't talk. You know, so. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, as I understand those chips, you really have to go right up to the dog and kind of scan its fur to to read it. Some of these uh, transmit, a, you know, a much greater distance. Right, right. So you can be remotely tracked. And, uh, you, you know, we have to really kind of balance and weigh our civil liberties here. Uh, I think uh, I'm not willing to compromise my civil civil liberties, you know, for the sake of, uh, I guess, protection. But right. No, we had Senator Simidian on this year and last year, and, you know, he isn't really trying to stop technology. He's only trying to build in safeguards so that the RFIDs can't be read uh, by those who, you know, we didn't authorize to read it, and so that they're not really, you know, that they don't have any more information that they need, that they don't need to have on there. Lots of, you know, really good reasons to protect ourselves, and, uh 
just can't seem to get it passed. I mean, well, we got them passed, but we couldn't get them signed, right? Yeah, well, that's right. So uh, maybe this is something that has to be worked on in, in stages. Uh, I think Senator Simidian is taking a good approach by uh, kind of breaking it into bite-sized pieces, hoping that maybe, you know, each year the governor will sign one additional measure, and then we'll show through experience that, you know, you can have the balance between um, the the valid purposes for RFIDs and stopping the abuse of them. Richard, with regard to the whole legislation issue with RFIDs, um, you know, we're really behind, aren't we? I mean, the technology is there and it's moving ahead and we don't have enough safeguards. And yet the industry, the RFID industry, is probably responsible for why we're not getting those uh, those bills signed, wouldn't you? Th- don't you think? Oh, absolutely. Um, yes, Th- there are a lot of business interests at stake here, and they wield a lot of clout. Uh, you know, particularly with this governor, uh, with the legislature as well. Although I will, you know, compliment the legislature for having supported these bills. So at this point, it's mainly the governor that needs to be convinced. Well, what about a referendum on something like this? I mean, it worked for SB1. (laughs) It worked for financial privacy. I mean, this is a really very scary issue that we really don't have a lot of the protections. And when you think of the Real ID Act, which we're going to talk about in a minute, and other other uh, governmental-issued documents that could actually have an RFID embedded them embedded in them if we don't have the safeguards maybe maybe it is time for another referendum maybe so um, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll have to uh, see what kind of coalition we can put together um, th- those are big p- undertakings but it, I think it's a great idea you did it once you can do it again Richard right. okay. <laughs> you're, you're our, our hope oh, our, our hope and our fearless <laughs> leader oh, boy let me introduce you again. We're speaking with a, a wonderful privacy advocate, Richard Holliber, who is the executive director of the Consumer Federation of California, and you can learn more about that wonderful nonprofit organization at consumercal.org. So let's get back to some of the other things. We just talked about RFIDs. What else? What about healthcare privacy? Well, healthcare privacy, boy, uh, that's a biggie. That's a biggie, <laughs> and there are uh, some some protections in place, and it's an interesting one because um, there is a move here to have you know electronic healthcare records, and that again creates all sorts of potential problems with um, information getting into the wrong hands. We have done some work on that. They're implementing that at the state level. In fact, uh, one of our uh, staff members is working on a task force at the state level that um, is at least interested in uh, trying to make sure that there are protections in place. But, um, you know, certainly no one wants their private medical information out there. Um, You know, it's some of the most sensitive information that we have. You know, we were just thinking about, you know, the the fires that we've had recently and, and how many people have lost their homes and how many elderly people were, you know, thrown out of uh, retirement homes and, and uh, nursing homes, and a lot of them left without their medication, and they didn't have, uh, you know, they were in, in crisis. And, you know, for something like that, you know, and also thinking of Katrina and thinking of earthquakes, on one hand, there could be a real benefit to having 
all that information in a place where it could be accessed in case of a disaster. But there has to be some safeguards as to who has authority to let other people see it. I mean, if it's if it's encrypted in some file that you have on somewhere off-site that you, only you can access or authorize or your immediate loved ones can do, that's one thing. But if it's shared with everybody indiscriminately, then we get to the issue of what you were talking about, Richard. Yeah. Well, we have a couple of overlapping issues here. One is the basic right to privacy. The other is uh, security of, of documents that uh, need to be somewhat um, available for uh, third parties to use for good reasons. And um, those two are overlapping, but um, in, in, to some extent they're distinct issues. I'll, I'll just mention a you know, and this is really an annoyance, I guess, more than anything else. But you know, I was going. My actually, my wife was going through our mail not too long ago, and she noticed um, that I'd gotten this mailing for a cosmetic product from I think it was Macy's department store, and it was based upon I, I have rosacea, which is you know a red reddishness in my skin, and how would they know about this except that they got their hands somehow uh, from the company you know, that prescribes this drug for me. Oh, my uh, God. And she said, hey, how would they know this? So, you know, uh, I mean, uh, that's not a big deal for me, but the principle of it is a very big deal, that we don't want drug companies selling our information for commercial or any other purpose. Right. So did you ever find out? I mean, did you go that far to find out? I, I am planning to do it. This just happened a few days ago. Yeah, I yeah. mean, or even ask Macy's, go back to Macy's first and say, how is it that you sent this to me? Yeah. You know, and then see where they found it unless you bought something from somewhere else that somebody else sold it to them. You know, I mean, it mm -hmm. could be anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, so so are, is there some legislation that you're proposing with regard to um, state protection of medical records? Well, there's a state implementation process um, that is underway right now. Um, uh, you know, under the Bush administration's um, objective of, of creating these electronic medical records. And they're pushing the states very hard. The states do have some role in responding in how they implement the records. And at this point, we're participating, along with some other consumer groups, uh, in this task force that is developing a response. Um, it's, I think there is a great deal of sympathy among the medical community professionals who serve on this task force. At this point, it's kind of early to figure out you know, how far the state will go. Now, is this task force through the Office of Privacy Protection? No, or, it's, no? Um, it's through the, um, uh, you know, Department of Health, DHS, Department of Health Services. Okay. Okay, so you're taking, so it's a, it's a state task force or it's a yes. federal one? Yes, it, no, it's a state task force. I think this is occurring in all the states in response to the federal dictate uh -huh. to uh, have these electronic records. Wow! Wow! So, is there a website for that that we can that our um, audience can look at? You know, there there probably is, and I, I I'm sorry I don't know. Except if you were to go to the Department of Health Services, okay, uh, which is a state agency, DHS, you know, on the state um, website, you 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 may be able to find your way to um, to that information. 
Well, you'll have to come back on and tell us more about that, too, then, after you see what happens here. Sure. So let's talk about some of the bills that did pass this year that you think, you know, that the governor did sign that are good for privacy, and then we'll talk about some of the other bills besides Semidian's bill that, that should have passed, let's say. Uh, well, in terms of privacy, there were a couple of good bills that were signed that are not huge. You know, they're, they're, they're somewhat modest. Um, but there were two bills that um, Assemblyman um, Dave Jones, who's from Sacramento, carried, Assembly Bill 1168 and Assembly Bill 1298. And those deal with uh, making sure that state agencies take better precautions with people's social security numbers and not reveal them, not print uh, more than a portion of a social security number on any document and so forth. So the, the, those are good steps forward. Uh, unfortunately, the biggest bill that was also by Dave Jones, uh, which is Assembly Bill 779, uh, was vetoed. And this bill had almost unanimous support. It was bipartisan. Almost every, all Democrats and almost every Republican in the legislature voted for this bill. Uh, it would have required businesses to take much stronger precautions to safeguard records in their possession, our personal financial records in their possession, including encrypting records that are in computers, and to dispose of those records when they no longer needed them to process uh, you know, for example, a credit card sale. It also would have prohibited businesses from even storing at all, at any time, credit and debit card PIN numbers and security codes. You know, and, and if someone gets your PIN number and your security code, they, they can have a field day, you, right. know, you know, with your stuff. Now, um, what gave, well, there are a couple of things that gave rise to the bill, but, uh, well, the TJ Maxx was was yeah. the biggie. You know that, that was, was the, the big biggie. impetus because what was it? Forty five million mm. records were yes. stolen. And yeah. as I understand it, the records were hacked right. by folks that were sitting in a parking lot outside of a store, TJ Maxx store, uh, with a computer, and they hacked into a, an unsecure or a series of unsecure store computers, and over a period of months, uh, got forty five million records. Right. Um, you know, so uh, a company like TJ Maxx certainly can spend a few bucks to to make sure that they encrypt those records. It would have saved them millions of dollars in all the lawsuits and all the hassle that and the fines that they're going through right now too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it's it would have been for I mean companies it would be to their benefit to have to encrypt this because yeah. if they safeguard this information. Then, if there is a security breach, you know, pursuant to our security breach notification law, that if the data is encrypted, they don't even have to notify the consumer. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I think the reason it was vetoed, uh, there was one provision of the bill that would have made the entity, you know, the business, wherever the breach occurred, responsible for sending those notices and not the um, financial institution, uh, the credit unions were great, and they, they, they actually sponsored this bill because if their information is compromised by a retailer, it's the credit union that has to mail the notices. to Right, and they wanted to be people. reimbursed for yeah. all that, yeah, yeah. And, and also the cost of issuing a new card. Exactly. So, so it could cost 
literally hundreds of thousands to uh, notify all of the potential victims. And then, what is it, like $50 a card or something to reissue, and, and also the losses themselves. So they wanted reimbursement from the retailers, right? Right, and that, of course, uh, well, or, or uh, reimbursement or to make the retailer have to send the notice. And, um, of course, that brought the retailers out in opposition and it brought lots of other businesses out right. in opposition because to them it was just a, a cost factor. And the baffling thing is that it also got the commercial banks' opposition, even though they would save money because they're the ones that are sending out these uh, breach notices. Right, right. Now, was there a part of that bill, and I can't remember if this actually got into the bill or not, but was there a part of the bill that if you could prove as a retailer, that you took all the precautions, that you encrypted, that you discarded, that you did all those things, that then that would let let you off the hook from having to reimburse. Was did that stay in there or not? I can't remember. Um, boy, uh, that, remember uh, that was in there for a while. Yeah, that I I don't know, but yeah, I would think it would have stayed in just knowing uh, Sullivan Jones and you know what a hardworking author he. Yeah. Is, that he would do anything that doesn't compromise the bill, you know, to 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 address valid objections. Right, right, right. I mean, I can understand that for the retailers because the retailers are just pretty much overwhelmed with these laws. However, if they would have encrypted, they could see how it would be to their benefit and also it would be to the benefit of the credit unions and Visa, MasterCard, and everybody else. But, um, yeah, it was interesting that, that he vetoed that bill. It was uh, I, I kind of expected it because of the retailers, but on the other hand, I thought... There was something good would happen out of it because Congress had, I mean, uh, because the California legislature was together on that one. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, do you think that's going to come back? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the second year that the, the bill has been uh, through the process, and it, it will come back. Absolutely. Well, you know, the, 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 um, the payment card industry standards pretty much require the same requirements that were in that bill. That the ones from MasterCard and Visa in terms of what they have to do to protect their databases. And Minnesota had already passed a bill uh, that made that, uh, that PCI standards um, a statute. So um, I guess Minnesota was ahead of us this year in, in terms of privacy on that a- aspect. Yeah. So what, what, other ki- what other vetoes were disappointing? Well, uh, boy, there were uh, several that were disappointing. Um, let's see. We could start with um, the veto of a bill that Mike Feuer, uh carried, AB 1673, and that dealt with, um, you know, rebates um, that, that if, a store, oh. if a store advertises the after the rebate price, then they sell you the product for that price. And then if they want to collect the rebate, the store collects it. But right, that was right. vetoed. Now, you have to understand, rebates are a uh, type of a bait-and-switch operation. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, a company will advertise the, the discounted price after the rebate, lure you in, and you think you're getting a great deal. And then you go home, and, you know, the, the, the act of the purchase is over. And then the act of collecting the rebate is done later and, you know, think about what you have to go through. Oh, I know. Yeah. I've done it a million times. Sometimes I get reimbursed, sometimes I don't. You know, you have to cut the thing off the box. Mm-hmm. Then you have to write the letter. You have to fill out the form. Then you have to send the thing. 
and then they write you back that they, you need something else or you didn't send them the right thing. <laughs> I always make a copy of everything I send because yeah. then they can't tell me I didn't. But, yeah, I mean, how many times do people just say it's too much trouble to well, get the rebate? You're, you're you're much more vigilant <laughs> about it than most yeah. people. I mean, I don't know how many times I bought something and I, you know, set the the receipt aside thinking, all right, I'll get to that on the weekend. And then, you know, three or four weeks go by and I finally said, oh, darn it, I'm, uh, you know, or, or just, oh, what, uh, you know, it's just too much hassle. I mean, right. our lives are busy. So um, the, the, the figures I've seen, 40% of all rebates are never collected. And they know that when they advertise these exactly. rebates. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, they know it and figure, you know, why not just put something on sale the old-fashioned way? Remember when they used to have sales? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, this is a way to, you know, create the illusion of a sale, knowing that maybe half or more of the discounted price will never be collected. It's worth billions. Or you have a rebate that you see in the newspaper. You cut it out and you bring it in and you get it immediately. Sure. That's the kind of rebate I like, where it's yeah. instant rebate. Well, there are a few stores that are starting to do that because there have been so many complaints about rebates. So I guess for every, everyone listening who, you know, kind of blew it by not turning in some kind of rebate, trust me, you're not alone. This is done <laughs> on purpose. They know that we're not going to turn them in. <laughs> so, you know, just don't uh, fret but get angry that the governor vetoed this bill. <laughs> exactly. Write the governor a note. We're speaking with Richard Holliber, who is the executive director of the Consumer Federation of California. And he is a strong and fervent consumer advocate and privacy advocate. So let's switch gears and talk about the telecommunications issues. Um, Your organization is doing a lot in that area. Tell us about that kind of work that you're doing. Sure. Well, cell phones are a blessing and a curse, right? Right. People can't live without them, but uh, cell phones are the number one consumer complaint that's been filed annually for the past six years with the Better Business Bureau and other organizations because there's so many con jobs involved in, in how these products are sold and marketed. So several years ago, the Public Utilities Commission, which is a state agency, began adopting a telecommunication consumer bill of rights. They spent four years working on this. They crafted some very good common sense protections for consumers, and they put them in effect in 2004. And the telecom companies, cell phone companies in particular, started complaining. So they first gave them extensions of time. And then meanwhile, new people were appointed to the Public Utilities Commission. And as soon as a new majority was in place, that was a pro-industry majority, they rescinded the Telecom Bill of Rights. They took uh. back everything that had been worked on for four years through, you know, exhaustive hearings and compromise. And uh. So um, unfortunately, we have a Public Utilities Commission that is just, you know, in line, lock, stock, and barrel with the industry that they're supposed to regulate. Mm. So, so we have gone to the legislature um, now the last uh, three years to try to bring back different pieces of, um, of that Bill of Rights. Uh, one issue that we're dealing with is these uh, early termination fees. And, you know, you get your nice cell phone and you're all happy about it. 
and uh, uh, then maybe you get your first bill, and you you know it blows your mind <laughs> because there are all kinds of charges on there, right. and you know that you didn't uh, didn't anticipate and that are hidden in this fine print. Well, uh, we think two things: one, everyone should have 30 days to uh, uh, a grace period to terminate a new contract without paying a penalty, right. and that these termination fees should be phased out. You know, the majority of cell phone contracts are two-year contracts. Right. So if you have a $200 uh, early termination fee, by month 23 of a 24-month contract, you should only pay a small fraction right. of that initial uh, fee. Yeah, it should be prorated at least. Yeah, yeah. So that was in our bill. Uh, uh, Senator Alan Lowenthal carried that bill for us. Uh, it also would have prohibited uh, third-party, you know, um, retailers from tacking on their own early termination fee. All I can say is be careful when you go into, um, you know, a Comp USA or some of these other stores to buy a uh, cell phone because the, the the retailer slaps on a second early termination wow. fee, which is ridiculous. Ah. But uh, that bill died in on the floor of the Senate. Um, this is now our third attempt to get some language to protect consumers. And, again, this is an industry that uh, we have identified, well, it's been a while. Um, a year and a half ago, we had identified $20 million that the telecom companies had uh, handed out in Sacramento since the year 2000. So wow. a five-year period, $20 million. <laughs> that buys you, all, you know, the best legislature that money can oh, buy. <laughs> gosh, it is so disgusting. Yeah. It is It is unbelievable. Yeah. Now, I will, you know, I will say that there are lots of good law. I don't want to, you know, be sweeping about it. There are a lot of good lawmakers that are consistently with us, but we can never get a majority. And these companies are bipartisan. They buy everybody left, right, and center. <laughs> So See, that's why, you know, it, the, the referendum idea is such a great idea because, you yes. know, you just bypass all that stuff, you know. Yes. I mean, the only thing is is that they uh, put out their own uh, advertisements and, and can buy can buy time on TV. But, yeah, um, yeah I, I, I think the whole idea is what we need is a really strong um, opportunity to to get into the media and explain the stuff that's going on and have people get mad as hell you know on your website you do you have blogging i mean i i saw that you can complain and send complaints yeah. and you can um write an email to you right um, we, we have a blog on uh the issue of privacy um that's the first one we developed we have a uh, a blog called privacy revolt that's what we call it. So you can find <laughs> I love that. it. Privacy Revolt. Just uh, just Google for Privacy Revolt. You'll find we have a blog, and people can you know comment on privacy issues. And we're probably going to expand that to other issues as well. Let me ask you, Richard, on that. Take action now. Make your voice heard. Sure. What is that? I didn't have a chance to click on that. Does that give me an opportunity to? write to my legislator through your website, or how is yeah, that? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, what we do is we post action alerts, right? and then we ask people to um, go to that alert, and it'll have a uh, pre-written letter, but you can go I in. Edit it, yeah. You can edit it, put it in your own words, and then send it to your legislators, and it'll find your legislator once it has your address. It'll figure out who your law lawmakers are. 
And, um, you know, we're really trying to build that up. Uh, I was going to say you should really put that, like, really big so people can understand that. Because I, I know I've done that many times on Consumers Union. Yes. Um, I sent, even though I write my own letters, I go on there and I, for their financial privacy now, I'll edit the letter as I wish and I send it because it's quick and easy people will go there and then they don't have to sit down and they don't have to stamp it or whatever but I think um, that idea of getting you know millions of letters through your website and consumers union I think that that really is great do you also have something how about something to the media can can you set up something on your website and, and besides sending to the legislature that they send to the uh, you know, the San Francisco Chronicle, L.A. Times, Orange County well, Register, that kind of stuff? We, I know what you're describing. We do not have that. That's where you could write a letter to the editor and just have the website send it sort of automatically. Yeah. Uh, I've seen those. It's a great idea, uh, something for us to do. Doing a, doing a, a website redo is a big project, but I we're, we're going to be doing one probably early next year, so that's a great idea. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, from what I've learned, the, you know, the little that I know about politics, which you happen to know a lot more about, um, is that it seems that when we get a lot of stuff in the media, all of a sudden the legislators take a look at that. You know, even though they're getting a ton of money, if, if they're embarrassed in the media or they see that the media is is getting inundated with public opinion they uh sometimes will go you know with with the public opinion yes i agree it's it it, it, it is possible in a democracy to actually have some influence (laughs) on occasion (laughs) that's why in my own little way with this own little show i am trying to bring that kind of stuff up there but um well, let's let's talk about food safety because that's been pretty scary. You know, you think of the E. coli and, and food maybe coming in from China. I mean, it's it's terrifying. So, what what is your organization doing about food safety? Well, we've worked on some labeling issues and um, have had uh, our difficulties getting getting these through. Although there's one bill the governor did sign that I feel very proud about because we sponsored it. Uh, Senate Bill 220 by uh, Ellen Corbett, and it deals with uh, water that you you know buy in vending machines and also bottled water. So it has two aspects: the vending machine water, which would be like in supermarkets where you kind of refill uh, your water, and um, we found that among immigrant communities in particular, where there's a tradition of buying vended water, uh, that, that that is a major that people continue to do that in California. And the safety and health and inspection standards were not very strong. So this bill is going to increase the safety standards and the inspection standards for vended water. It has another provision which I think people will enjoy. When it takes effect, not until 2009, bottled water will have to tell on the label, will tell you the source of the water. So when you go and buy your bottle of water and it looks like it came from some sparkling, pristine mountain spring. I'm sitting here with my bottled water looking <laughs> at the bottle as you're saying this, Richard. Okay. And, you know, so don't be shocked. It says spring natural water. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, don't be shocked if it says L.A. tap water, okay, because the majority of bottled water comes right out of a tap, and, yes, they do process it. But and this, p- this particular bottle, <laughs> you'll, you'll tell me as the expert here says, a hundred Lloyd pointed out the hundred percent natural spring water, 
battle to replenish your body and mind and soul. A hundred percent spring water. Are you feeling replenished? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but the, you know, I remember one time when I was in Mexico and uh, we were buying bottled water, and then we found out that they were just like filling it through the tap. <laughs> oh, yeah. you know, and you think you're going to be safe. That's when I started drinking margaritas instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> As I got my, you know, uh, amoebic dysenteries. <laughs> But no, no, those are those are important things yeah. that, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's so much fraud out there, whether it's fraud from drinking water or fraudulent scams out there. It's uh, it's it's really pathetic. Yeah. Um, Can I just add one point sure, on, on sure, the food? Or sure. Two, I guess two quick points. One, we, we have supported state and federal um, country, country of origin labeling laws for, for food. And we sponsored a bill back at the time of the mad cow uh, outbreak to label beef products uh, by country of origin. Uh, we got that bill to the governor's desk, and it was vetoed. Uh, the supermarkets were opposed to it. Interestingly, the local family farmers, of course, were all in favor of it because, you know, there is a certain degree to which people will buy uh, something local if they, right. if they know it is local. Now, with the new issues with, um, you know, tainted food coming from China, uh, I think that's brought this back to the fore, and there's a sudden renewed interest in it. At the federal level, uh, just to kind of point out the power of multinational agribusiness, the, the federal farm bill uh, did include country of origin labeling back in 2002. But there's been an ongoing moratorium every year. They say uh, not this year, not next year, not the following year, and it, it just keeps being postponed. The one area, interestingly, where we do now have labeling is for fish. If you go to your supermarket, it will tell you what country it's from. It'll also tell you whether it's uh, wild or farm raised. Right, right. And the reason that got through is that the senator from the state of Alaska. <laughs> who uh, was a powerful Republican uh, senator, said, I don't think I'm going to let you postpone it on, on fish because yeah. he wanted to protect the Alaskan fishing fleet. Right, good, good right. Good for him. Exactly. And of course, the supermarkets, you know, screamed that it was unworkable, but it's somehow they're managing to do it, and they're not going broke. Exactly. So we just want to extend that to all, all fresh meat products, vegetables, et cetera. Yeah. I know sometimes if I buy New Zealand lamb, it'll say New Zealand lamb, you know, so I'll know that it's from New Zealand as opposed yeah. to the United States. But, but no, I think that's a great thing. We have a few more minutes. Let me just ask you about the skyrocketing health insurance premium. I can't even tell you how much it costs for us each month. And I, you'll, you'll know when I tell you how much it is, how old I am, so I'm not going to tell you. But it is just totally outrageous. And and then I have the um, health savings account so that I have a, a really high deductible as well. Yeah. So what are you guys doing about that? Well, we are uh, supporting legislation to try to do two things in the short term to rein in the skyrocketing prices by um, subjecting uh, health insurance companies and HMOs to a rate review and approval process by the insurance commissioner. No, no different than, if you recall, Prop 103, which uh, the industry spent $70 million trying to defeat 
20 years ago when 70 million was a lot of money uh people voted for it and you know homeowners insurance and car insurance is subject to a review and if they find the prices or the profits are excessive uh the the insurance commissioner just cut the 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 um car insurance uh premiums by about 20% because the um I'm sorry homeowners insurance by about 20% because um the the profits were excessive and no one says the insurance companies shouldn't make a reasonable profit it's just when it becomes gluttony you know we got to draw the line so we're trying to do that for um health insurance again uh a bill that Dave Jones carried assembly bill 1554 that bill died in the Senate Health Committee mm. and uh you know we'll keep fighting for it but uh you're you're talking about a very powerful industry and then longer term i think our healthcare system is essentially broken we need to first establish the idea that healthcare is a human right just like it is in every other modern industrial democracy and you know when you have a right the right is enforced by the people through the government not by going to private insurance companies we have the right to public education we have the right to public safety you know if your house is on fire you call the fire department they put out the fire i think our our health insurance system is a is a disaster uh about 30 cents out of every premium dollar you spend for private insurance is eaten up by that company only 70 cents goes to healthcare you look at medicare which is a government run insurance plan 3 cents out of every dollar is used for administration 97 cents goes to the delivery of healthcare so you hear a lot about how government can't possibly run as well as the private sector baloney the government is doing it much more efficiently it's it's figured out how to do it because it's not trying to make an enormous profit and fatten the you know the wallets of the CEOs we've we've got to get these private for profit insurance companies out of the business of healthcare uh senate bill 840 by senator kuehl would do that and um it was vetoed once but we're going to keep trying that's right well lloyd says we are out of time you have been so wonderful richard we appreciate all that you do for the consumer federation of california just give your website and we're going to have to end sure our website is www consumercal consumercal.org thank you so much and we appreciate keep up that great work and we'll have you back again thank you thank you you've been you've been listening to richard holliber who is the executive director of the consumer federation of california i'm mari frank i can i talk I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, and thank you, Lloyd. You uh, can find out more about our show at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where you can see our past guests, listen to our archived interviews, and see our upcoming guests. Join us every Wednesday right here on KUCI from 5 to 6 p.m. Wednesday evenings at 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.